0: Welcome to The Detour, where we connect ideas and personal experiences without looking for easy solutions. Several years ago, when my younger kid was in third grade, I asked her a question about a close friend of hers, who I'll call JJ. How does JJ see themselves? I asked my eight-year-old daughter, as a boy or as a girl? My kid had little patience for the question. She shrugged and shook her head. As J.J., she said, as if it was obvious, as if that was simply that. To some extent, in J.J.'s case, it was simply that. The more I got to know J.J., the more it became clear to me that J.J. was, as my daughter had declared, just J.J. But it also wasn't fully that, and still isn't. J.J. may have seen themself and wanted to be seen as neither a girl nor a boy, but just as J.J., but my daughter saw and still sees herself as a girl. And I used to see myself as a boy and now see myself as a man. And the schools and towns and societies we both found ourselves in also see us in these ways. This kind of sorting, the girl and boy and man and woman sorting, happens so frequently and is reinforced on such deep levels that it can be hard for most of us to have the first shred of an idea what it's like either to resist the two categories altogether, as J.J. did, or to feel oneself, one's deepest, truest self, to be in the other of the two categories than the one that's been received or assigned. Today on The Detour, for the second episode in our series on belonging, we talk with Stacy Rice, who knew at five years old that her true self did not correspond to the body she found herself in. Stacy's now in her 60s, and she's in the midst of a pretty remarkable journey that has taken her from a small town in the South to an almost big city in the Northwest. And from a child who couldn't find anyone in her community that was like her, to someone who's working to unearth and share stories of queer and trans adults, especially older queer and trans adults who, like Stacy as a child, live in rural places. Stacy's journey has unrolled against the background of some huge cultural and legislative shifts related to gender and sexuality, though these shifts have moved and continue to move in multiple and often unpredictable directions. You'll hear right from the start that Stacy is a storyteller. And I think you'll also sense right away how important her stories are. In this episode, we've got the double gift of Stacy's stories of her own life. And part of her interview with Sarah Weiner, who she talked with in her efforts as a 2023 Oregon Humanities Community Storytelling Fellow. This means she's part of an Oregon Humanities program that supports people who belong to communities historically underrepresented in Oregon sharing these stories. It turns out that it's no easy thing to find older queer and trans people living in rural places who are as comfortable speaking publicly about themselves and their experiences as Stacey is. It was an honor and a delight to be in conversation with Stacey, whose work you can also read in Oregon Humanities magazine and in an upcoming Beyond the Margins essay. Here's Stacey now.
1: My name is Stacey Rice. I'm a 66-year-old trans woman. Uh, I've lived in Portland now almost 12 years. I uh, lived the rest of my life in the South before I came to Portland, uh, I had to escape. <laughs> it was time. I mean, now it's even worse. But mm-hmm. uh, but when I came to visit Portland and just saw how uh, different the culture was here than what I knew in the South, I knew that I had to move. And so six months later, I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I transitioned uh, back in 1999 to 2000. So that's been 23 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was. It's been quite a journey, mm-hmm. but I'm very happy to be here at this present day, and uh, couldn't be um, filled with any more joy than I do every day that mm-hmm. I'm being my true self. Mm-hmm. The work that I've been doing with my Oregon Humanities Fellowship is I really wanted to highlight the older LGBTQ plus adult community, uh, especially here in Oregon. These folks are kind of an invisible population now. Mm-hmm. They and we were also on the front lines of the rights that we have today. Mm-hmm. And there's just there's just not much of an uh, understanding maybe or knowledge or remembrance of kind of what people who are my age at 66 and older kind of went through to get to this place today. It's a miracle we all survived, yeah. actually. Plus, it's uh, I was uh, – I was on the state uh, committee to come up with a a survey for older LGBTQ adults in in Oregon. It was uh, probably the second one in the nation that's been done, and that was done two years ago. Mm -hmm. And that opened my eyes, too, to a lot of interesting statistics, the fact that 60% 60 of the people who responded still face discrimination, Mm -hmm which was a stunning figure to Mm -hmm. me. And so, yeah, so I feel like it was really, we really needed to kind of put a light, I think, as I was hoping to put a light Mm -hmm. on who this community is and what we've had to go through. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: You said at the very beginning, you said highlight, and then towards the end, you said to put a light on. And it's interesting to think about, uh, I guess, what that means and what it asks of people.
1: Yeah, which is – that's been uh, quite a journey for me over this past year with with this fellowship, Mm -hmm. Um, especially with my last uh, thing that I've written, because I focused on rural LGBTQ Mm -hmm. older adults in Oregon, and uh, I have – have contacts throughout the South so I kind of I mean the South (laughs) throughout Oregon and so I uh, so I called on them to kind of maybe connect me to LGBTQ plus people who were older Mm and you know in communities outside of Portland Mm -hmm. I really thought it was important to share that story I grew up in a Town of two thousand people in the mountains of North Carolina, mm-hmm. and I know what my struggle was there uh, in a very conservative place. Uh, so I thought, well, I, surely I can—I'll find people who will be just jump at the chance, maybe to share their stories for mm-hmm. me to shine a light on what their lives are. I found actually the opposite. Everyone I reached out to. Whether with phone call or in person, to kind of talk about what I was doing and that, you know, I was going to write this this essay and it was going to be, you know, about people's journeys and where they live in rural Mm -hmm. Oregon, and everybody was really on board. I mean, every single person was on board when I first talked to them about it. Okay. And then the next step, I never heard a word. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and I. I struggled with that at first, and then I realized that I was feeling a little bit of privilege about that. I live in Portland, Mm. and I can be hundred percent out as a trans woman here, and that's fine. Mm. And it has been since I moved here. I forgot my roots. Interesting, huh? Which was um, that if someone had come to me in nineteen ninety seven and said, "Hey, Stacy, we you know." Our state magazine in North Carolina wants to wants to highlight LGBTQ people, and we want to interview you. I would have been like, "Oh hell no!" Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, that, I'm not going to do that and because
0: it just felt unsafe and too yeah, risky. Um,
1: yeah, I think the, the very both of those actually. I, I think, um, uh, and even, and I think it's the same for people today. I, I think actually is that I mean, I think the fear and the apprehension about you know having a safe Life mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. can be jeopardized when I mean when you kind of go into a statewide you know mag or uh, you know publication that actually goes out nationwide and throughout the world mm-hmm. that all of a sudden your story is out there and that people are having you never know whether somebody in your little town is going to see it or maybe not but. I really think that I think that folks once we got away from the initial conversation, and I did a, a grant anonymity to folks too, if they mm-hmm. wanted to do it that way. But I think it was just the fear was too much. I mean, because mm-hmm. there, I mean, some folks were living like in small places, the where that's their home, you uh-huh. know, and that's where they've made a life, and and so to kind of think about, they would probably jeopardize that. Mm-hmm. I think, it, I think it became too much. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I, in a way I was thinking about like even in the early draft of this piece that you're working on called Rural Places. Mm-hmm. It sort of starts with you talking about sort of taking practice trips out in your town, practice trips out of home and the risk of showing up as your true self. And it felt to me like part of that was that that is the practice and the risk was around what are people going to say about me? What is the story that people are going to tell about me? Uh, And so that's, I think, part of what felt so powerful was to think it's different when, when I'm telling it or when I'm telling a story that someone feels comfortable about rather than when other people are sort of shaping the story in the way that they feel like shaping it.
1: Oh, yeah, because I mean, each of us can probably have experiences that maybe other folks haven't remotely thought of. I mean, the uh, thank you for bringing that up about doing the practice runs because I wanted to make sure, you know that I that this was truly who I was. and the only way to do that it, by the time I got to, you know, in the mid 90s I was because I was born in 57, so that was what 38, 39 years old is that I wanted to see how it felt to go out as my female self. Mm -hmm. I was always beyond nervous and anxious of doing that. I mean, it was just, oh, my gosh, Mm -hmm. it was just so nervous. Because one is, um, I didn't do it, I did it one time in my small town. Mm -hmm. um, uh, But the rest of the other trips I made out was outside of the small town, right, to kind of go to maybe a a bigger place where, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody would, I would never, might not run across somebody who knows me. Mm-hmm. My feeling at that time was is that, you know, I was risking everything. Yeah. I mean, especially in the small place where I lived. I mean, everything was very tight-knit there. It was, um, everybody knew me, knew my family. Uh, so if I was exposed there, which I eventually was, right. how that would just be an untenable situation for me to live there. Because of just the judgment of mm. uh, the talking behind your back, I mean Southerners—they love to gossip. So I mean, <laughs> so there would be a ton of that going on, uh-huh. and you would meet people, and I mean, it just—it would just be such a hard thing. Mm. So, which led me actually, and I talked about that in the essay about that I—I I had to move. I yeah. had to move to an, another place. Bigger place. If I wanted to kind of fully transition, I I couldn't carry the emotional burden hmm. of trying to. I mean, good Lord, just trying to transition is enough of an emotional burden, but carrying all that other stuff with me too was going to be just just too much. I couldn't do it. Yeah.
0: So a bigger place, a place that was it sounds like uh,
1: less conservative socially. Exactly. Yes, I. I moved to. I was in North Carolina, and I moved to uh, down around the Research Triangle Park area, which has uh, always been known as a more progressive mm-hmm. part of North Carolina. Uh, I had a friend who was going to Duke University, the grad sc- uh, the grad school there, and she says you should come down here, and I've got the perfect place for you. She says it's a little town called Carboro, okay, and I go well, why would I go to a small town that no. doesn't make any sense? She goes, oh, no, no, this is not like any small town that you know. And I go, well, what is that? She says, well, one is it's right beside Chapel Hill, where the University of North Carolina is, mm-hmm. which has always always been known for decades as a very liberal place. Carborough is right beside Chapel Hill, and they just elected an openly gay mayor in mm-hmm. 1997. Yeah. And I go, okay, maybe that might work. And it worked beautifully. Mm. I spent almost ten years there, right. and it was a beautiful experience. And I was very well accepted, mm. and nowhere near as progressive as we are in the Pacific Northwest. But for the South, you know, it was pretty good. Can I just ask on a sort of mechanical level, how do you
0: do? How do you find people in these places that uh, that you're then going
1: to talk to? Well, it's it's it came from a probably of two main areas, I guess, is that I love to travel in Oregon, and I've done lots of things and been whether it's with with their Winter Pride Fest, doing a Mm -hmm. panel there on uh, uh, inclusivity in the outdoors, or or spending a lot of time. I go to Crater Lake a lot because I love Crater Lake, so I sometimes spend time in in Klamath Falls. So I... I knew people there, okay. uh, and I ended up getting Sarah and Ben and her wife Joanne to, uh, and they're in the essay. Uh, and then they'll be sharing some some audio from the interview I did with her. Okay. Uh, the rest of it, though, was just reaching out to friends of mine. Like I have a dear friend in Lebanon, and mm-hmm. I have uh, uh, who knew a couple in Burns. It would have been nice to have maybe. Taken more time to mm. kind of let people get to know me. I think it sounds to me like you're talking about trust. Yes, exactly, deeply so. Because, I mean, who am I? I mean, are you going to trust this person that's just saying, well, "Wait, I'm doing this fellowship," and mm. da 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 da. It would have been lovely to at least, I mean, had the time because I think it's that takes time to build yeah. up that trust and maybe you know, like in person, kind of. Mm -hmm. visits and things like that, just to kind of see who you are and kind of what you're about. Yeah. Uh, Why, it makes me want to ask, like, why
0: elders in particular? Why are you most focused on stories around older LGBTQ folks?
1: Well, you know, as bad as things are today, you can look back to when we were the age of, say, you know, because I was 10 years old in 1967, Mm -hmm. um, some of my Trans elder friends are a lot older than I am. And so, you know, they were in the 50s. And I mean, there were several things. I mean, um, I don't, I'm going to get the date wrong on this, but I think it was up till sometime in the 60s. It was considered, you could be arrested for being gay Mm -hmm. and put in the jail. I was the American Medical Association, their psychiatric association, you know, classified homosexuality as a deviant behavior. And, you know, some older LGBT folks had shock therapy trying to mm-hmm. change them, quotation marks. And then, of course, the AIDS epidemic, you know, that was just in the 80s. We'll say just in I mean, that's 40 years ago now. Uh, I found that when I worked at Q Center for the seven years I did there, just how little knowledge within the LGBTQ community there was about, interesting. Yeah. about the AIDS epidemic and what that was, which devastated gay communities all through the world mm-hmm. i mean it almost feel i mean it's like you know a coronavirus pandemic just focused on one community right. basically of course it kind of it, there was other folks affected too so i mean it's, it's a miracle that any of us made it through because there was really no place i mean there were no public places except for bars maybe or mm-hmm. a private clubs that you could find somebody else like you it took me to 10 years old to finally see somebody else who was like me. I thought I was the only one in the world who who was transgender. And I, ten years when I was 10 years old, I saw Christine Jorgensen on television who was very famous as a trans woman back then. And so we've had to make our way, hmm. uh, make our community, make uh, just our lives I wanted to really highlight just how hard that's been for Mm. a lot of folks. Uh, And it really is because, like I said at the beginning, it is because of that work that's kind of got us to where we are today. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that the,
0: in a way, the success in making change, which doesn't mean there's a lot more change that, that still needs to be made but that attitudes generally in the culture laws on the books in many states and nationally have changed uh, in ways that probably in the early 60s -hmm. the late 60s the 70s the 80s would have seemed far-fetched but one of the difficulties then is for younger folks that are coming into the world as it is to sort of recognize maybe both the precariousness of some of those changes and what it took to get there. I mean, there's a there's a kind of analog with feminism almost in a way too, or, but this is very recent stuff and also not. So I, I, I don't know, is that something that you're thinking about when you're talking to other folks of your generation or a generation older than you?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, I think this has been a wake-up call for the queer community and the LGBTQ community to see that, well, wait, we still got so much work. Okay. We got marriage equality, which was an amazing thing, but good Lord, there's still mm-hmm. so much left to do. You're
0: listening to The Detour with Stacy Rice. You mentioned Christine Jorgensen. Yes. And that when you were 10, you saw Christine Jorgensen on television mm-hmm. and in that same you have a piece in Oregon Humanities um, magazine where you mention, I think, three moments. One is Christine Jorgensen on television when you were 10. Mm-hmm. One is a magazine you came across when you were in France. Mm-hmm. And then another is again a magazine you came across and you say in a in a smaller city in the south in a bookstore. I was thinking about those three moments and how much they meant to
1: you. Oh, they were—well, I think I could just maybe best classify them as gifts, you know, from the universe that mm-hmm. uh, that I desperately needed. Mm-hmm. Um, like like I said earlier, I mean, I thought I was the only one in the world who was dealing with this, you know, and just the the amount of emotional and mental anguish that I carried, you know, as a young child— Uh, with this, and of course, even after I knew Christine was there, it still continued. But uh, just the fact that, I mean, we were in a a roadside motel in Oklahoma on the way out to New Mexico, and here was this news story, and I I almost, I couldn't even breathe as I was hearing Mm -hmm. this, because she said something that I'd felt, that ever since she was a little boy, she felt like a little girl. Mm -hmm. And that you could have knocked me over with a feather when I heard that. Mm -hmm. So it at least gave me, um, it gave me a little bit of a life preserver that well wait, okay, I'm not the only one. I still don't know what in the heck to do with this. Mm -hmm. The magazine that that it and there was nothing else really there until I was just graduated from high school and my parents somehow Mm -hmm. found a way to to send me on a trip to Europe with my French class, you know, the eight countries in 10 days kind of thing uh-huh. in 1975. And we were spending the night in Paris, and I go to my room, and there's a magazine, kind of like a People magazine back then, I guess. Yeah. And even with my limited French, I could tell that this article was about a trans person. It showed them, like, in their daily life and, mm. you know, going to the grocery store and everything. And I just—it— uh, it, I thought, wow, of all the places. So, but then uh, in the nineteen late late nineteen eighties, I'd kind of learned a lot more about trans just by hook and crook, really. I mean, because of course there was no internet. We had three channels of television. Mm -hmm. Most things I found was in my college library. You know, if I found anything, and so, so here I was uh, in uh, the. Small mountain town Asheville, because uh, I lived outside of Asheville, and there was an alternative bookstore. Okay, and I'm walking through one day, and I'm looking down, and I see this magazine uh, tapestry. And I never do get the rest of the title right, <laughs> but and I looked down, and, I, and it said it said transgender or transsexual, as the word was used back then. And I said, "What?" Uh-huh. And so I picked up this magazine, and it was published out of Boston, uh-huh. and it was all these stories about trans people and. Pictures of them and ads for different things, you know, about how to improve your, you know, to have more of a female voice if mm-hmm. you're, a, a, you know, a, a trans woman. And until I finally got down to Carborough uh, in 1997 and actually met, had a support group there of trans folks, which kind of opened up my world in some many other ways, those are the only three things that I had. And, um, Good Lord, I don't. <laughs> so. I mean, it's it's
0: amazing that the importance that those stories showing up not with people you knew, but in mm-hmm. publications that in each case you happened across. I mean, in the third one, it sounds like to some extent maybe sought it out, but the first two really was happenstance.
1: Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? It I is. Mean, it is. <laughs> And plus, it's something that I desperately needed. I I mean, because, uh, I mean, as folks can probably imagine, carrying a secret like this Mm -hmm. with you every single waking moment of your life and while you're sleeping, too, Mm -hmm. is that and not having anything that you knew that you could do about it. I mean, I saw Christine go, well, okay, she'd she'd had um, gender-confirming surgery in Denmark, Mm -hmm. like in the 50s or early 60s. Uh, but that just, I mean, I was in a small mountain town, you know, as I've talked about, you know, where would I find somebody who would even remotely have any clue about this? I So, and I didn't really have the words to, sh- to tell my parents what I was mm-hmm. dealing with. I was scared, I mm-hmm. think, uh, mm-hmm. in that it was so, quotation marks again, odd mm-hmm. that I would feel this way. Uh, I didn't know if I was maybe afraid I would lose their love if I shared that because I really start took in very deeply that there was something really badly wrong with me mm. to feel this way, mm-hmm. and luckily I've worked through that over the decades. Yeah. But uh, it just, but it was just like okay, those those instances gave me a glimmer mm-hmm. of hope when most of the time there was none. So I was deeply thankful for that.
0: Yeah. And it makes a ton of sense to me hearing that, that you're right now working on telling stories in this, in this area about people who are experiencing a different phase in life maybe, but Mm -hmm. experiencing similar stuff. Uh, Do you have, like, if you had to boil down, why do you want to, why do you want to find and share these stories, these people's stories?
1: Well, my life back in North Carolina after I transitioned in uh, ninety nine year two thousand, I was very closeted mm-hmm. for safety reasons, for sure, in North Carolina, and it's still that case, still the case to this day. There is no protections for you when it comes to un- employment, services, housing. If I had told the places I worked as Stacy mm. that I was a trans person, they, if they didn't like it, they could have fired me and there'd be nothing I could do. So I needed a job, so I just kept my mouth shut. And I had mm. my family, of course, has been very supportive. And I had close friends I could share, too. It wasn't until I got to Portland and started working at Q Center, the LGBTQ Community Center here in Portland, that when something trans came up, I was a person that, staff wanted to talk to huh. say a family who have had a trans child and they didn't know anything about what it meant to be transgender but say they would always say which always just made my heart so happy they said well we love our child we just don't understand what this is so i was mm-hmm. you know by default i guess was kind of talking to these families about okay my journey mm-hmm. and Okay, what you're feeling is quite okay, and that there's a sense of loss, and that your child is maybe not quite what you dreamed their life was going to be, and so there's grief about that, and mm. all the so it just over the time I was there, I just had more and more opportunities to be able to to share my journey and my story, and then I don't know if it wasn't like one moment where I just realized that. Okay, this is what I got to do. Just like okay, this is what I'm meant to do. Mm. Along with the fact that most people don't have a a great idea about what a trans journey Mm. is or the person that's transgender. Mm. I mean, there was a really it was a really interesting survey. I think it's about two years old now, maybe three. I think it was in Gallup that they entered. They the question was, do you know someone who's gay or lesbian? 86% 86% of the respondents said yes, I know someone who's gay or lesbian. Do you know someone who's transgender? It was 34%. Wow. So there's this huge gap yeah. in that people don't know our lives. I mean, you hear lots of just horrific, you know, tropes out there about, you know, who trans people are and that, you know, it's just a man in a dress and, you know, you want to go in the bathroom because you want to assault someone. I mean, I mean, there's lots of room for that because people don't know Mm -hmm. what it is. And so it's kind of the next step for me is to kind of share, Mm -hmm. okay, this is what the journey is about. These are what pronouns are about. This is why pronouns are important and all those kind of things like that. Because I think, um, you know, I I mean, I I really feel like you can change the world when you just Mm one-on-one, you know. Uh, Eventually that spreads out. And I think it just drives me to keep telling stories of my community. Mm-hmm. You know, all those percentages were all lower than I would have
0: guessed. And, oh, interesting. Uh, which maybe is a sign of, like, the world that I'm living in. But also I think some of it might be and now now I'm thinking about my kids who are teenagers mm-hmm. and thinking about who their friends are and how they show up in the world. And what this goes back to what we were talking about before a little bit, sort of what they take for granted, which is Incredibly hopeful in a lot of oh, ways.
1: Yes, I mean, we we had a lovely program at Q Center. We had a senior program, and um, it was one of the middle schools here in Portland. I want to say it was Laurel Hurst, but I could be wrong. Mm. These kids had choice of electives they could take for the year, and one of them was learning about LGBTQ history. Mm. These are middle-aged school, I mean, middle school kids. So they would come once a quarter to, um, you know, to hear an elder or two share a story. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we would sit with a a group of two or three of the kids, and then they would interview us, which was sweet and lovely. At the end of the year, they put together like a little, you know, folding board of your story, (laughs) which was so sweet and lovely. But the one thing that struck me with that, and I'd already been feeling this anyway, is that... These younger generations, I mean, because these kids were just so thoughtful in their questions at, like, mm-hmm. what, 11 and 12 years old. Mm-hmm. The one of the little boys, he said, I asked him why he wanted to take this class. And he says, well, Stacy, I'm not in community. That's how he started out. <laughs> I said, okay. But he says, but I think it's really important that we learn what LGBTQ people have gone through. Oh. This is an 11-year-old young boy. Yeah. And I'd always felt it because I could see it like, you know, in my daughter's forty two, but even my nieces and nephews are younger. Okay. Uh, I could see in their attitudes. I'm just Aunt Stacy to them. There's huh. no no big deal. You know, where are we going for dinner? You know kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question too. So I mean, yes, it really is. It's a lovely question. Um, so I, and I was and I see this more and more. These younger generations are huh. they're just at a different level they're going to be the ones who are going to get us to where we need to be mm-hmm. if it all doesn't go down the tubes before then uh yeah I'm miss, miss optimistic here but, well, but you, no, no we are we are going to make it i do believe that and these kids are going to step in there and take it to the places it needs to go so you mentioned the 11 year old
0: and classmates asking you questions do you as you are engaged in this project Do you have a question in your head that feels open still? Is there something that you keep wondering about as you're doing this work of talking to LGBTQ elders in Oregon, in rural spaces especially?
1: Hmm. Probably, why is it so hard for people? And I'm sure there's lots – I mean, I haven't dug, I guess, deep enough into this to to see the reason because I know there's probably a lot of work done on this – but just why it's so hard for people to accept someone who's different? Hmm. I think fear is probably part of it. Going through what I've gone gives me a different lens. I think on some level to kind of see somebody who's who whatever different color, different you know struggle. I mean whatever. I mean it gives me a little bit more compassion. I think hmm. and understanding, but it's lacking in so many people. I. And I don't understand why it's that way so deeply. Maybe mm. it's just human nature. I don't know. Uh, but I struggle also with with folks who love me and support me, but uh, when it comes to political things on the opposite end, mm. and how we don't how for some reason, they don't put two and two together away, you that know. That is
0: like the relational and the political.
1: Yes, exactly. Like okay, I mean, that love me and accept me totally, but then would would uh, would want somebody in office who wanted to get rid of me. Mm. And there's just a real disconnect there. Those um, are both huge <laughs> questions. <and laughs> Wait, we're not going to answer those today?
0: <laughs> well, if, you, if you've got answers, then to those. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but those feel like uh, huge questions to walk with.
1: You know, I... I wouldn't change a thing about my life, mm-hmm. as hard as it's been at times and deeply difficult, yeah. because it's made me who I am. It's given me so many, so many wonderful things. Um, I mean, you can't beat. I don't know really how many people in this world actually are, hundred percent true to who their heart and who they are. Yeah. I plus other LGBTQ plus folks are mm. which is one of the most incredible gifts that you can give yourself. The joy that I felt the first time I saw my female face after being on hormones for 6 months is a joy I still feel to this day because it's there she was and yeah. it's who I am and What a blessing I get. I mean, you know, life is still hard. I mean, it's not like everything, you know, Mm -hmm. is just hunky-dory. And there's never one second that I am unhappy about what my journey has been, who I've become, because, gosh, it's what my heart is. Mm -hmm. And I've been true to that. And what an incredible blessing that is.
0: Stacey Rice is a speaker, educator, and a 2023 Oregon Humanities Community Storytelling Fellow. She lives in Portland. Here's Stacey's interview with Sarah Wiener that I mentioned earlier, the one she did as part of her Community Storytelling Fellowship. Sarah met her partner Joanne Telemark skiing on Mount Rainier in the early 90s. A few years later, they took to Bend, Oregon for sunnier days, better runs, and an escape from the rain for better triathlon training season. Sarah shares her story of questioning her move to a rural town, of being perhaps the first pregnant lesbian in central Oregon, and finding her community through the phone book.
2: had a little bit of a a moment of little breakdown and I'm like what are we doing we're crazy <laughs> you know I'm Jewish and we're gay and you know are we nuts to move to a place like Bend, Oregon <laughs> and you know in 1996 and oh my gosh I literally pulled out a Bend got a Bend phone book oh yeah oh yeah but we had back in books. the day yeah. when there was such a thing as uh-huh. yellow pages and white pages
1: yeah
2: and I um looked in the yellow pages under Jewish mm-hmm. and I looked under gay Oh and believe it or not I have got a contact for the Jewish community so I contacted them there was a group that the JCCO the Jewish community of Central Oregon okay, and at that yeah. time it was small and met in the basement of a church downtown mm. and then um, and I've been a member of, of the JCCO ever since Oh, I mean I love it, it, yeah. we ended up getting a a house that became our synagogue and over the years and stuff and Bella had her bat mitzvah there, the whole thing. The other one was gay (laughs) and believe it or not again, there was a number to call. Really? And um, whoever answered it said, oh I know there used to be this thing called the funny farm." farm and it's up Highway 97 north, up Corner of Deschutes Market Road. And it's still there. It's still there. But the two big. men, one has died, and the other one, I don't know if he still lives there, but it was quirky, kooky. You could rent <laughs> costumes. There was, this, you know, like, I mean, it was funny oh, and quirky God. and super campy gay.
1: Yeah. And that.
2: these two men were like, <clears throat> it was their phone number in the yellow pages. The other part of our story that's fun is that we were the first you know pregnant (laughs) lesbian (laughs) i was the first pregnant lesbian anyone knew in central oregon and who knows how far beyond and i had two doctors fighting over me they wanted to deliver my baby oh really Yeah. cool (laughs) they were cool and the first day i went to the ob gyn office yeah yeah um, well yeah i
1: bet that was yeah
2: the (laughs) melissa etheridge issue of newsweek was on the counter and I was like, hello, I feel welcome here. <laughs> Here's your sign. <laughs> I had met a woman through out Central Oregon at the time that was here. Uh-huh. And she was a straight woman who was part of, like, the, the group. And she told me, I said, who do I go to? Who, What OB did I see? <laughs> yeah. So she gave me the name of Diane Georgeson. And I fell in love with Diane. She was an East Coast New Yorker. She was, seems like she was Jewish too. She was Italian, which is the same thing back East. And um, we all sort of mix each other up. Yes. And then there was another OB I learned about, and her name is Marlis Byer. She's Jewish. Uh And desperately wanted to deliver my baby. Oh. It was very funny. Oh, how sweet. So they were both on my, like, in my full file. Like, if one isn't available, call the other one. So, I mean, I was... What worried. an incredible
1: we gift! Yeah. Oh my God! We because I was, I was thinking about that and really kind of worried about how... because it's such a crab shoot. You know, you
2: know, we got lucky with everything <clears throat> around that. Mm-hmm. We went to tour the birthing center and the woman who gave us the tour was incredible oh. and then when we got there and i was very far along in my del- labor she was there oh, yes. and she remembered us oh, and she gosh. was lovely so oh, we had really good luck with people that got it
1: because when i thought about your story when you first told me some about your story when we first met and i thought oh my gosh all the things you had to go, th- you enjoy and Joanne had to go through here, like like the doctors, like all this. I mean, it's so awesome to hear that it really went okay.
2: It did. And honestly, um, there were literally like two issues that came up for okay. us that were homophobic.
1: Okay. In
2: all the time we've been here.
1: Let's think about Ben today.
2: Yeah.
1: And, um, and of course, all the nonsense is going on everywhere about. Queer people, but um, what what's your feelings about where Ben is in is is at today? Uh, <laughs> as you look back on you know your year, years, you and Joanne's years here. Year, 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 year. It's
2: funny. Um, I mean, I can tell you that I see a heck of a lot more women walking down the street holding hands. Okay, absolutely Good. downtown. Good. You know, or in the old mill district Wonderful. of all ages. I can tell you that Gay Pride. Well, it used to be yeah. called Gay Pride uh-huh. Festival, uh-huh. which I was part of starting. Through the Human Dignity Coalition, we started my that God. like twenty—I don't know, yeah. twenty some years ago. God, and, that's great! Oh my God, and it that's was amazing. tiny. I mean, we had like five booths, and <laughs> I was one of on the booths, and we had like twenty-five people show up. And last summer, there were thousands.
0: That was Stacy Rice with Sarah Weiner. Sarah still lives in Bend with her partner Joanne. Last year, Oregon Humanities hosted a live storytelling event where contributors to our magazine read their pieces from our 2023 spring issue on the theme of joy and pain. Here's Stacy reading from her essay, The Wisdom That Finds Us, live at Ron Toms in Portland.
1: Oh, thanks everyone. Really appreciate you all being here tonight. Thank you for for uh, giving me the honor to be able to share my story with you. Last September, around my 65th birthday, I went to my mailbox and found an envelope from the Social Security Administration. When I opened it up, I saw a brand new red, white, and blue Medicare card. My first thought was, am I really that old? I sure don't feel like it. In 1999, I finally transitioned to my female self. I was 42 years old. The joy that came into my life at that moment, when the little girl who had shown up so long ago was released, still fills my heart today. In just the past 10 years in the U.S., same-sex marriage has been legalized. Don't ask, don't tell has been repealed. And in 2014, Laverne Cox a trans woman appeared on the cover of Time magazine with a headline proclaiming transgender rights as the next civil rights frontier. But as I think back on my life, it is hard at times to grasp the advances that have been made. On one hand, those, these advances have been followed by increased backlash, seen in nationwide efforts to block transgender youth from accessing medical care or reading books that reflect their identities and on the other hand during the early days of my transgender journey there was so little acceptance at all I was around five years old when I slowly realized that who I thought I was didn't quite line up with the world's view of me as a little boy I could not for the life of me figure out what I had done to deserve this But there it was, a deep knowing that I was a little girl inside. When I looked in the mirror, I always hoped I could catch a glimpse of her, but she was as hidden to me as the explanations for why my life was this way. Those explanations were hard to find in the 1960s. It was eons before the internet, and the only links I had to the outside world were the three channels of television that barely made it to our mountain ridge home by way of a tall steel antenna with space-age looking arms. When I looked up at it all alone on our roof, I always wondered if it felt as lonely as I did. My days back then disintegrated into an internal storm of confusion and anxiety that overwhelmed my small body and mind. The thought that there was something inherently wrong with me had begun to imprint on me, and I carried that idea around for many years. Eventually I came to a place where I fully believed that I was just doomed, destined to be burdened by this inward knowledge as if it were an extra appendage that couldn't help me but constantly got in the way. In the summer of 1967, however, At a roadside motel in the depths of Oklahoma, comfort finally found me. It was there I had a vision, not quite in the biblical way that my Southern Baptist Sunday school teachers had talked about, but there was an angel, and she did bring good tidings, or at least great relief. My family and I had been traveling for days, headed west from our home in the North Carolina mountains to see family in Albuquerque. It was late in the afternoon when we pulled off the highway into a small town baking in the July heat. We drove slowly down the main drag, looking for a place to stay for the night. We eventually found a motel and parked under the white corrugated aluminum roof just outside the office door. Walking inside, my eyes were dazzled by row upon row of colorful brochures on display, each one telling of a local roadside attraction not to be missed, just a few miles ahead. After dinner, we settled into our room and gathered around the ancient black-and-white television that was tucked away in the corner. I was elbow-deep in my new brochures, daydreaming about what place would be cool to see next when I heard the words that changed my life. I looked up at the television and there in front of me appeared an exceptionally stylish woman with brownish blonde, perfectly coiffed hair. She wore a black satin skirt suit and a flashy lapel pin in the shape of an oversized heart and a miniature bejeweled Eiffel Tower. Across from her sat an old man. Ever since I was a little boy, she told him, I knew that I was actually a little girl inside. My breath left me as I heard those words. I had never before contemplated that there was someone else like me. Her name was Christine Jorgensen, though I wouldn't find out the details about her journey until many years later. She served in the Army during World War II before traveling to Denmark in the early 1950s, where she found doctors who performed gender-confirming surgery. Shortly after her return to the U.S., She was outed by New York Daily News when they published a front-page story about her with photographs from before and after her transition. I slowly looked around the room at my dad, mom, and brother, scanning their faces for any sign they had seen my reaction. Or maybe more importantly, searching for a hint of interest or a twinge of recognition, something that said, Why, yes, our oldest son is just like this woman. Instead, I saw nothing but blank faces staring at the screen, and no one said a word. I struggled with what to do with this information as we continued to make our way to Albuquerque. Every part of me wanted to shout my discovery from the roof of our wood-paneled Ford station wagon, the woman on television last night is just like me. Yeah, As the miles clicked by, I realized that I could not summon the strength or the courage to say anything about it. I didn't say a word on that trip or during the many years that followed. The lengths I went to hide the little girl and later the woman inside of me took more energy than I had most days. But there was no way I could emotionally or mentally face the potential loss of my family my close friends, my job, everything that made up my life by revealing who I really was. So I became an amazing actor. Sometimes I think that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences should have given me an Oscar for outstanding performance in a male role. (sighs) Because I nailed it. (laughs) And while they're at it, maybe another one for costume design. Because of how well I hid myself behind the big black beard I grew and wore for years, no one could see the woman behind that disguise. There was so little around me that showed me the way to my soul's freedom. The little bits of information that did trickle into my life seemed more like cosmic nudges that had somehow found their way to me through all the stardust. One of these came while I was visiting Europe with my high school French class in the summer of 1975. Somehow my parents found the money to send me on this trip, a 12-day whirlwind bus tour as a graduation gift. The first stop was Paris. In the late afternoon, our bus dropped us off in front of a brown stuccoed hotel in the middle of an older residential neighborhood. I was given the key to my room and rode the micro sized elevator to the third floor. As I walked into my room, I glanced toward the neatly made bed and saw a magazine lying in the middle of it. I picked it up and thumbed through the pages, stopping cold at an article that I understood, even with my limited French, was about a person who had undergone a sex change operation. The photos showed her living daily in a way I could have hardly imagined. She became the second transgender person I had ever seen. In the mid-1980s, I lived in a small city that had a newsstand. It was an intimate space crowded with stacks upon stacks of alternative magazines and newspapers. It became my weekly ritual to roam the aisles and pick up a copy of the Sunday New York Times which served as the vehicle that took me far away to places and ideas that were hard to find where I lived. This was where I first found a magazine titled, Transgender Tapestry, full of photos and articles about transgender people and their lives. Many of the pages contained advertisements for female clothing, shoes and wigs, videos on how to feminize your voice, and so many other things that were exotic to my closeted life. I somehow found the courage to walk up to the counter and buy the magazine, and every month after, I made a pilgrimage back to buy the latest issues. These nudges were utterly important to my survival during those years, but I still needed answers to important questions, like how do I tell my family? How do I find other transgender people where I live? Was there a therapist out there who would understand? Do I need to move to a larger city and just start over? Where would I find doctors who could help me? I would have almost sold my soul for the internet back then. As my despondency grew, there were decisions to be made. I felt like I only had two viable choices. I could either miraculously find my way forward with transitioning, or I could end my life. It was as simple as that. I hadn't had a single moment of peace in my mind or soul since 1962 when I first realized who I was. The thought of ending my life and as a result, finding peace, sweet, blessed peace, washed over me and my God, did that feel amazing. I would finally be free. However... In 1997, I moved from my small hometown in the mountains to another small town in the flatter part of the state. It wasn't your typical southern town. There was an openly gay mayor and right next door a large university town that was known to be full of accepting people. And it was there, thanks to the blossoming internet, that I found a monthly transgender support group in a city not too far away. It was there that I finally found my community. I met trans women who were in the midst of transitioning or had already transitioned. They shared their doctors, therapists, those who were accepting and those who were open to helping with the documentation needed to start hormonotherapy. therapy. They recommended an who would help rid you of the beard. That was a constant unsightly rem- reminder of the male body you were encased in and that female hormones would not take away. They shared their journeys, all the hard times, and the incredible joy that came from being true to who you really are. Soon it was time for me to transition to living full-time as my female self. I applied to the county court to have my name changed from the male name I had carried around for the first 42 years of my life. Around two months later, my attorney called to say, to say that the change had been approved, and I went by her office to pick it up. As I held this piece of paper in my hands, I read it over and over again just to make sure it was real. It was like I had a brand new birthday to celebrate. I had to overcome so many challenges to hold that piece of paper, those of us in the LGBTQ plus older adult community have faced plenty of difficult struggles to find our place in the world. Struggles against devastating circumstances that seem barbaric today. In every state up until 1962, anti-sodomy laws made it illegal to be homosexual. And LGBTQ plus people were harassed, arrested, and otherwise forced to spend their lives with this thread hanging over them. Being gay was widely considered a mental illness, and in 1952, the American Psychiatric Association formally classified homosexuality as a mental disorder and a sociopathic personality disturbance. And tragically, the AIDS epidemic, which started in the 1980s, disproportionately affected the gay population and decimated communities where gay men had found family and belonging when there was otherwise none to turn to. There were many other difficult things we have lived through. Leading double lives, the very good chance of losing your biological family if you came out, struggling to find community, and a real threat of violence everywhere you went. At times it feels like a miracle that any of us in this community made it to this present day. There are so many who didn't. I worked for a number of years at Q Center, an LGBTQ community center in Portland. One day as I was walking down the hall from my office, I glanced into our conference room where a support group for 10 to 12-year-old trans kids was meeting. I looked at those kids, remembered myself at that age, and I started weeping, weeping with joy because these young kids had help and they had each other. I felt overwhelmed by the thought that they would not have to go through what I did. Younger LGBTQ folks are now experiencing major threats to who they are. Some of them for the first time in their lives, Those who have come before have an intimate understanding of these struggles. The history of our movement has always been one of fighting for our rights. Regardless of our identities or ages, we have all had to find the courage to listen to our hearts and become who you truly are. As difficult as our journeys have been, there are gifts that I and probably many others in this community have received from our struggle the realization that we possess strength and courage far beyond what we could have ever imagined, this resiliency is one of our superpowers. On the day I received my Medicare card, I started thinking about how lovely a passage my life has been, even with all I've gone through. And I thought back to that small, overwhelmed five-year-old child who had somehow made it through all the struggles, confusion, and seemingly insurmountable odds to make it to this day, standing at this mailbox. The whole journey was laid out right there for me to see. I had made it after all. Thank you.
0: You can find more of Stacy's work in our show notes at oregonhumanities.org. The Detour is produced by Kieran Bond. Dave Friedlander is our editor, to whom we offer huge thanks for his work on this show over the past two years. Dave, please come back to us soon. Ben Waterhouse, Karina Brisky, and Alexandra Sylvester are our assistant producers. Alexandra has recently taken the name Sylvester, for which we say congratulations, and it means of the forest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.